Psalm 119, and uh, we come to the stanza Taith, which is starting in verse 65. So whenever you see those letters at the top of a section in this psalm, remember that in the original language, you see the words of each of those verses starting with that letter. So if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, you can read through those words at the top of each section. But this section has, in the original language, that letter taith to begin each statement. And I'll start reading verse 65 and down through verse 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And may the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word. Let's just look to the Lord in prayer before we look into this portion. Lord, your word is good, and you are good. And we pray that we would see uh, in this portion of Scripture food for our souls. And we pray that you would minister to us and teach us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. What do you think about when you think about the goodness of God? Verse 68 says, you are good and do good. God is good and he does good. We just thought about a definition of the word. The word good means beneficial or having desirable or positive qualities, or it can have the idea of moral excellence. A person is a good person. They're living rightly. The promised land in scripture is a good land. Why, why was that? Deuteronomy says, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land of whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And literally for centuries in Israel, they're discovering and experiencing the goodness of that land. It was beneficial for them. But what about when God does something that doesn't seem good? What about when he allows something that is adverse to us? What about if he were to take the husband of a woman in death and her two grown sons who were married, never giving this woman any grandchildren from her sons? And what if in that circumstance, she had to leave where she was living and go and live in poverty with her daughter-in-law? Is that good? Well, Naomi didn't think it was good. 
She even said when she returned to the land, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, which means pleasant? Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You could look at Naomi's life in that point and you would say, yeah, she's going through serious adversity. But even in those moments, God was doing something for her that she didn't realize the benefit of. He was working in the heart of her daughter-in-law. One went back. You remember Orpah went back, but Ruth didn't. And in Ruth's resolution, she not only resolved to go with Naomi, but to believe and trust in Naomi's God. She trusted in the Lord. And then as they returned into the land, although that was Naomi's heart condition, God was at work to do some things in Ruth's life and through that, Naomi's life, to eventually bring about his good purpose in his providence. And certainly over time, she began to see and understand that God really was up to something good. One day she was able to take her grandson, Obed, into her own care and watch him grow up. Obed, whose son was Jesse, whose son was David, the king. God was doing something good. But it was that affliction that she was experiencing that she was saying, I don't like this. And she had this response to it of bitterness. But over time, sure, Naomi came to understand that God had a greater purpose than just her present happiness or joy, even in those relationships that he had given to her. This portion of this psalm is about the goodness of God, even in the first statement, verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, is a statement about God's goodness. Verse 66, it is good discernment that he desires. And it certainly is a good result that in verse 65, through affliction, that he is keeping God's word. And so it's in that context, he says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And you can see, even as he continues, he says, it was good for me to be afflicted, verse 71. And then when he uses the word better in the connection with the law of God's mouth, uh, that's a statement about value and about goodness too. So we're thinking here about the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word and the goodness of God's certainly his instruction through the times of affliction. So let's read through or look through this, at least the first half of this section, and I trust the Lord will teach us. First thing that uh, David is saying here is that God has been good. He's done something good, and he's done something good in keeping with his promises. So Verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Yahweh, or O Lord, 
according to your word. This is something that God had promised. And now he's bringing to pass. And it's showing that he is faithful to what he has said. God does good in many ways. I think as you look at the goodness of God in scripture, it's a wonderful study. Of course, the attributes of God, if you just think about that attribute of goodness, you can't look at it in and of itself without starting to see the various other attributes that align under it. God's goodness flows through his love, his compassion, his grace, his benevolence. It's certainly in his works, Acts 14, 16, and the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. If you read Psalm 65, you see reference to the mountains, the ocean, the dawn, the sunset, the rain that enriches the earth, fruits, vegetables, grain that grows and becomes food for us, flocks, herds of animals, all of which God has made for his world and made for mankind. He's good. He even tells his children, his people, to do good to their enemies because he is good to his enemies. Do good to them, Matthew 5, says, to them that hate you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And of course, of all of those things, there's an even greater goodness that God has displayed, that God has done for this world. He has sent his Son into this world. John Flavel asked the question, what was the principal work in which God has manifested his goodness to men? And he answers, the principal manifestation of God's goodness was in the work of redemption by Christ. Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 1, or 4, 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And so there is goodness. Goodness and more goodness that God has shown. The specific instance of goodness is that he has kept his word here. You've dealt well, you've done good with your servant. He's humbly recognizing his position, his relationship to God, but then he says, according to your word. He had promised to do David good, and he's doing him good. I like what Spurgeon said. This is the summary of David's life, and it's almost assuredly the sum of ours as well. So before he ever did David good, he promised him that he would do him good. And let's recall, can we, why God makes promises of goodness? Why does he make those good promises where he says he's going to do something before he does it? And I'm going back to a statement that we considered with Thomas Manton, and I'm just summarizing what he said. Why does God make promises? It's because his love is so great that he cannot wait until the thing that he has promised to give or do comes to pass. In other words, he has this thing that he's going to do, but in anticipation of that, his love 
Manton said, just kind of bursts out in making a promise. And in that promise, he binds himself to his people so that they can have what he called a hold fast. I think he's talking about a handle, a handle by which we can hold on to the Lord or we have security, sort of like one of those if you're climbing and there's a place to grab onto and it's a firm place where you can surely get the grip and you can move, this is what God gives to us. Manton said God does that so that he actually becomes a debtor to his own promise. He makes himself a debtor by saying he's going to do something. And as he does, now we have an argument in prayer. Lord, you said you're going to do this. Would you do this? And then he does it. And then we have reason to praise him as David does here. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And part of the goodness is not just the blessing, but the faithfulness of God. The integrity of God, where he says he's going to do, and he does what he says he's going to do. So enter his gates into thanksgiving, the psalmist says. Into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. So when God keeps his promises, just by way of application, if he keeps his promises to you, he's worthy of praise. Even if that promise of his faithfulness to you results in adversity. Do you hear that? Even if his promise of faithfulness to you results in adversity. Because he's going to talk about affliction here. And it is through that affliction that he is experiencing the goodness of God. Before he mentions the affliction, he's asking, though, for understanding. Verse 66, this is prayer after his word of praise for the goodness of of God and keeping his promise. Now there's a petition or a prayer for good judgment and knowledge. He wants to know and he wants to think rightly about God, about his ways. And then he says, for I believe in your commandments. I, as I scoured uh, what I could find about that last statement there. It's it's interesting that he's saying, I believe in your commandments. It's one thing to say, I believe in your words, but another thing to say, I believe in your commandments. So we'll come to that. But before he makes that statement of trust, he says, teach me. You have dealt well with me, according to your word. Now, teach me good And the translation here is discernment. You might see in the margin, it literally is the word judgment and knowledge. Why is he praying for it? Because he doesn't have it. And if we're honest, none of us do. None of us have good judgment. None of us have full knowledge. We all are limited 
we can grow in that, but as we grow, we need the Lord to help us. We need, of course, his truth to inform our minds and then give us the ability to discern and judge correctly. Because of our sin, we don't think or choose what is right. We are ignorant until we're informed by the truth. So this is a good prayer. To think righteously, or what someone described as the practical application of truth to heart and conduct, that's good judgment, thinking righteously in that way, actually applying the truth to my heart and then to what I do. And then that good knowledge that he's asking for, teach me good knowledge, certainly that's what is true, my perception of what is true. So as I perceive and understand what is true, and on the basis of what is true, I act in keeping with that, and I make proper distinctions about what is important and what is not, and I act on the basis of what pleases God, truly pleases God, I'm starting to live in wisdom. And I think this is something that we need to pray for. Remember, Solomon prayed for wisdom to govern the people. He considered himself as a child, someone who really needed God's help, and God gave him that help. Paul prayed for wisdom for God's people so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You're familiar probably with his prayer in Colossians, where he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So it is that knowledge of God's will that he's praying for. And it's the purpose in understanding is not just, just so I can know, it's so that I can do. Now, what happens when we don't have that wisdom? What happens when we don't have that knowledge? We make a lot of mistakes. We sin against the Lord. Charles Bridges, as he describes the difficulty of the lack of discernment or the lack of good judgment, he says that without that good judgment, we tend to emphasize what is trivial rather than what is truly important. We emphasize the outward rather than the inward, and it's not that the outward is unimportant, it's that the inward is also important, and we can so focus on the outside that we forget the inside. I was reading this week in the Gospel of Luke and Jesus sitting with, I believe it was um, a scribe or a Pharisee, and they were talking to him about not washing his hands and Jesus just said this is you know basically why are you so concerned about the outside and not the inside god made both bridges said we think of conformity to the world in outward dress more than inner attitude when we don't have good judgment and yes, there certainly is, there are ways in which outwardly we can show our conformity to the world, but we also can have conformity to the world in our thinking and in our heart. 
He said we can emphasize what is non-essential instead of what is fundamental. We fail to see, see the distinction between what is indifferent and what is unlawful, truly unlawful. So what's going to help us with that discernment? What is going to give us guidance as to what is truly spiritually beneficial? What is truly important? What is fundamental? What is lawful or unlawful? It's God. God is going to give us, through his word, good judgment. We need his word. And when we fail to have good judgment, what does our life look like? Bridges went on to say it renders the straight way more straight. It makes it more difficult for us. It retards or it slows the work of grace in the soul. And he says it's usually connected with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. When I don't have good judgment, I tend to think only in terms of what I think I need to do in order to be accepted, whether by others or by God. But if I If I understand God's word, I understand what true righteousness is and how I ought to live. And I think according to God's principles. He goes on to say, when I don't have good judgment, when I'm not thinking right and certainly doing right because I'm not thinking right, he says it savors of and tends to produce hard thoughts of God. It damps our cheerfulness in his service and unfits us for the duty of the present moment. So we need good judgment. We need to be living on the basis of truth. And the way to get that is from God, from his word, and as we ask him to teach us, and he will. Notice his reason for his prayer. He says in the latter part of the verse, I believe in your commandments. Again, I believe in your word is one thing, but I believe in your commandments, those orders or directions. And you could say, well, I obey your commandments, but I believe in your commandments. Why is he saying this? Spurgeon suggested that David's heart was right, but his head was not. But he wanted his head to be right. He wanted his head to know and think and judge according to God's wisdom. He believed that God's commandments were right and good, but he wanted good judgment so that he understood and could act accordingly. He did rely upon, it's another word for the word believe. He trusted in God's commands. He knew that was the right path, but he really wants understanding. And it is a wonderful thing when not only are we doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we know why. God can help us with that, and we can pray that. We can pray, Lord, teach me. I believe in your commandments. They are good for me. They are what guide me in the path of life. I trust in them. I rely upon them. I'm expecting the promises that accompany them. I'm expecting the blessing if I obey them, but teach me and help me. Help me obey. Now, isn't it interesting that just following that is a mention of affliction? What oftentimes brings us into the way and teaches us discernment and and teaches us God's knowledge? But affliction. And so I think if you were to summarize verse 67, 
according to this theme of the goodness of God, this is the goodness of affliction as God's discipline. Notice he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And there's a blank there. In my Bible, right after that word astray, there's a blank. But then he says, but now I keep your word. And I'm not saying that that God revealed the blank. I'm just saying there's something in between the wandering and the keeping. What's the thing that comes in between? It's affliction. It's difficulty. It's hardship. It's pain. It's, in the words of one commentator, it's, it's something in the shape of a cross where we have to die to ourselves. So there's a wandering time that he's test, giving testimony to before his affliction. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. We tend to wander in our lives when things are easy. God warned Israel to beware of times of prosperity. Those would be not the only times, but those would be difficult times to stay faithful to God. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, this note, the warning of Moses to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You see those statements about the goodness of the land, verses 7 down through verse 10. We read that earlier. God is giving them a good land, that land that's full of all those good things, good resources, good things for them. But in verse 11, he says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to describe all the good things that God did in bringing them out of the land. But his warning to them is don't forget the Lord. In that time of wealth, don't forget that you used to be a slave. And how did you come to that place? It was the Lord and his goodness. Beware that during prosperity, you don't wander. Now, that's not the only time we might wander. We're sinful enough. We can wander just about any time, but it's that time that's a dangerous time. There's a cycle, if you've ever read through the book of Judges, where there was time, times of peace and prosperity. But during those times of peace and prosperity, usually under a judge that God sent to deliver them from the hardship they were in, In that time of peace and prosperity, they forsook God and they sought after idols. And as they sought after idols, what happened? It brought them back into that time of affliction. God was giving them over to their own desires so that they would then 
again, fall into that affliction that would bring them back to him. God was using that. And what did they do when they went through that time of affliction? They cried out to God. They cried out and called out and prayed to God like they didn't during those times of prosperity. Now, we could look through the scriptures and see times of wandering for God's people. But praise the Lord that if there is that wandering and then there is affliction as a result of it, that there is a God who in that affliction will still hear us even though we went after our idol. We pursued that path. God brought that affliction in as a teacher. Now, if we had to go through a, a theology of affliction, I was thinking about uh, just the some of the resources that I have, and I, I do have some that focus on the theme of suffering, but if you were to study that uh, doctrine of affliction in Scripture, it's throughout Scripture. It's everywhere. It's in the simple statement in James 5, 13, is any afflicted or is any suffering, let him pray. But it's really, to a certain extent, the history of Israel as they're going through affliction. And you see in Genesis, affliction on the part of individuals. And certainly we understand from the life of the Apostle Paul things about affliction, even circumstances in his life that even though he prayed that God would change, God said, he didn't say no. Effectively, he said no, but instead of saying no, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul prayed repeatedly, and that was the repeated answer, that the affliction was there to stay, but in the affliction, God would give grace that would be sufficient to help him. And Paul experienced, it seems that he was talking there about physical affliction. He went through imprisonment, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. He says that because of Jesus Christ, he says, and the gospel, he said, I, was, I suffer hardship at, even to imprisonment as a criminal. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, endure Suffering, endure those difficulties and distresses that come upon you for the sake of preaching the gospel. So not all affliction is coming just because of sin. But that's a part of what God uses to sanctify us. He brings affliction. Let me just mention a few other passages. Romans 8 speaks of tribulation. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or need, peril, or sword. 1 Corinthians 4, hunger, thirst, poor clothing, roughly treated, homeless, toiling, working with our own hands to the point of exhaustion, I think is the idea of being reviled, being persecuted, being slandered, considered the scum of the world. That affliction was coming on those who were preaching the gospel. God was certainly at work in that to do good things. And it's not just the outside of our lives, but the inside. The affliction that we have within. Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians 7, 5. 
he speaks of conflicts without, but fears within. He said, we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And many of the Psalms were forged, written in a time of affliction. Joseph, for no guilt of his own, went through affliction. The Thessalonians, as they came to Christ, went through persecution and affliction. Paul talks about financial difficulty as he preached the gospel, the circumstances that he came into and found himself in a position of need as affliction. There's certainly emotional pressures, circumstances due to the loss of a parent or a spouse, a loved one. That, according to James 1, verse 27, is affliction. We're not told what David was going through. We could look at his life and surmise he did go through a lot of affliction. But whatever that affliction was, notice he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before that pain came into my life, I wasn't doing what was right and pleasing to God. And it was the affliction that God was using. And let's just think about the change, and we'll conclude at the end of this verse. What what was the change in his life and and the implication of the change? The implication was he wasn't keeping God's word, but now he is keeping it. Before the affliction, he's going astray. Now there's a careful guarding of God's word. There's a desire to obey. I'll put it in some phrases that are some some statements that will hopefully help us. Before there was a casual attitude about the things of God, but now there's a carefulness about obedience. Where there before was just an acquaintance with Scripture, perhaps, there's now an adherence to it. Where before there was prayerlessness, now there's prayerfulness. Now he was truly praying, like he had not been before, through affliction. What had affliction done for him? It brought him to cry out to God. When we start experiencing pain, we want to know why. If we understand that God is sovereign, we look to him. And sometimes what he points us to is we were the cause. We were the cause of our own pain. It's not always like Job, who was going through affliction and difficulty because there's something bigger going on in his life and God's relationship with the devil, and there are things that we can see that Job couldn't see, but many times in our lives, it's actually our own issue. But when God brings affliction, and through that affliction is giving us cause to cry out to him, that's actually a gracious thing. That, that our prayer life is increasing, that our assurance of our being his child is increasing because he is at work both to draw me closer to him and to make me more like his son. Hebrews 12 speaks about the Lord loving those whom he chastens. He does love those whom he chastens. He scourges every son that he receives. He cares about his children. He is, as someone said, no derelict father. He he loves his children. He loved Jonah. Jonah went off, got on a ship, 
was trying to go the opposite way. God loved the Ninevites, but God did love Jonah too. As unlovely as he seems. When we think about ourselves, we could say, yeah, that's me too. I, I think I probably would have found myself in Jonah's shoes and eventually in the whale's stomach if I was him. So is God bringing affliction into your life? And as he has brought affliction, is that bringing you into a place of greater reliance upon him, trust in him? Is he deepening your Christian experience of sonship, or you could say daughtership, that I'm a child of God, and I understand that because I know he is at work in my life, even though it's painful and hard, God is at work. That's a blessing to know. Even when there's pain, it's a blessing to know that God is at work. And of course, we need to beware, don't we, that we don't do what this verse is talking about, go astray. You might not be in a major affliction right now. You might not be going through something like I've described or some of the passages I've referred to. But take care. You can see it's referenced here in many places in God's Word. Stay close to the Lord. Heed the warnings. Even Pilgrim, as he was on his journey in Pilgrim's progress, warned others. He set up a monument with his companion. And the monument said, out of the way we went, and then we found what it meant to tread upon forbidden ground. What did they find? They went to the castle of giant despair. And they were roughly treated. He said, let those who come after have a care, lest heedlessness makes them as we to fare lest they for trespassing as prisoners are, whose castles doubting and whose names despair. Heed the warnings. Stay close to the Lord. But if the Lord brings affliction into your life, you have been going astray and he's brought pain to bring you back. Praise the Lord. That pain is not going to be forever. And if he's at work, it's going to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life, which is going to, it's going to be a blessing. It's not, it's not a joyful thing in your current experience, but in the end, that is his good purpose for you and his good purpose for me. May the Lord apply the truth of his word to our hearts. I'm going to forego our final hymn tonight, but I do want to pray and just ask the Lord to do his work in our hearts. Lord, we confess that our circumstance in affliction is oftentimes complaining or doubt or despair, worry, fear. We pray that that affliction would have the purpose or have the effect, rather, in our lives to bring us to pray and to seek your face, to bring us back to your word so that we might follow it and keep it carefully. 
Now, I don't know all the afflictions that my brothers and sisters here tonight are going through. There's someone here who does not know you, Lord. We know that affliction is sometimes used to bring a person to faith in you. And so whatever your purpose may be in the afflictions of our lives, we pray that we might submit to your hand. And where we find ourselves sinning, repent, and help us to get back to the place where we're not wandering, but we're closely following. Your voice, your word, give us grace. Bless us through the week, we pray. Help us to walk with you. Help us to seek you by prayer. Help us to read your word. Help us to minister to one another in love. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you. Good night.